This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. We're listening to the full episode of The Indigenous View with Joe Martin. Good day, everyone. It is wonderful to have you here on another episode of Life Worlds. I am thrilled to share with you today wisdom holder and elder Joe Martin, who will be speaking to us from British Columbia. Joe is a member of the Tlaquat First Nation and is a master canoe and totem pole carver with over 60 canoes having been whittled and chiseled away by his hands. Just earlier this July, he and his community raised a new totem pole in ceremony at the ancient village of Hobitsat, which depicts his family's teachings of natural law. I've uploaded images of the totem poles in the show notes, where you can see how each pole carries millennia-old myths and stories and teachings about the human relationship with forces like the bear, wolf, raven, sun, moon, and stars. We travel to the wind-swept surf and pine coast on the west shore of Vancouver Island, where Joe Martin greets us from his home and carving workshop. As he speaks, imagine the process of deep listening and observation that is required to select the specific 500-year-old tree that will be felled and carved. Imagine the respect and care required for that process and the smell of resin, dusty wood chips, and crow song as blade slices into grain. So here we are, Joe. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to speak with you and learn about you in terms of your work with carving canoes from the beautiful forest up in British Columbia as a master carver and also your perspectives on forestry practices in British Columbia and where we're at today and and where things can improve. But before we get started, Joe, I would love to ask you to describe the land that you're in right now and where you're speaking to us from and and who's around you and and what other uh, creatures and forms of life are are with us as we have this conversation. I'm going to introduce myself in, in my language at first. My traditional name is Tuta Quisnapsil, and I'm from Tlaukwet, from the house of Iwas. And the chief of our house is named Nukmis. And Nukmis is our chief, chief of our house. And my name is the last name that I have received as uh, as an adult in uh, our culture, cultural teachings. And so here I am on the west coast of Vancouver Island in, in a place which is inside of Tla'uquet Tribal Park. We use the language like this because people do not understand our language, only try to uh, use a genocidal policy to erase it and forcing our uh, peoples into residential schools, and that's why I'm speaking this goddamn language to you. And so, anyways, I'm living here in this place, uh, in Tlaquet Travel Park, as I've mentioned, but it is on the west coast of Vancouver Island, beside a place called Long Beach, and it is at 49 degrees, 10 minutes north, 12554 west. If you want to look at it, you can find it there. It has the mountains and the uh, the oceans and many rivers. This place was uh, beautifully rich before anyone else arrived here. It uh, supported uh, about uh, 10,000 Tlaquet alone. That was about 10,000. I don't know exactly how many people were here, but 
when the first Europeans arrived, that was the population of our people alone living at Hobitsit, a place called Chatsitz, Chatsa, and then several locations where Tofino now is. And then so um, the people, you know, they, the way they lived, the land supported that many people, the resource, the forest, and it was well taken care of. It was a uh, responsibility of us as elders to uh, make sure that when we leave that this land will be in better shape for our future generations. We have uh, our totem poles that uh, people here use on the coast. And certainly, you know, when Europeans first arrived here, certainly we were illiterate. We could not read any of this stuff, you know. But so were Europeans also illiterate when they came to our coast. And they've seen our totem poles. They have no idea what those things are about. So every house would have at least three or four totem poles in front of them. And that is because of our grandfather and our grandmother. And our father and our mother. They all came with teachings. And then, so all those teachings were depicted on the crests of totem poles. So um, I'm going to talk about that, totem poles, because um, most people have no idea what they are about. You know, I have traveled to uh, other parts of the world, and I have been in Europe. I have been in... Uh, different parts and looking in different museums around the world and people still will only tell you that uh, they say this totem pole is carved from the Haida and this one other one is from the Simshian this is from the post Alice and New Channel and so on and that, that's all they can tell you about it but for me I can look at them and I can have a little bit of an idea at least what they are but if I look at a New Channel one I know what those things are about I know better I understand it better actually the um, top of a totem pole is usually the crest of the sun or the moon or the thunderbird. The thunderbirds, the ones with the wings open like that, typics are our male ancestors. The ones with the wings closed like that, it depicts our female ancestry. But always on the chest of a thunderbird is depicted the crest of the sun or the moon because it is the first teaching and the first law. And that began as soon as our mothers conceived our lives. So when mom conceived our lives, an elder would come and sit here and talk to us as if we were here already, a grandchild. When you're born, you'd be very respectful grandchild. And you know, this is only an example of how, how they would do this. How they would do that is they would sing these lullabies that they had, and they were beautiful. I remember my grandmother used to sing those lullabies when I was very little, but I haven't, I do not remember how they go. It's been too long. And so it went out, that's a teaching that actually went on throughout life. So in our homes, as you can see, I have some crests up there. I have a bear there. And I have other ones here that are um, that I, I prefer to uh, depict in my home because uh, it will help me to remember those things. And that's how people would do that. We did not need to write things down because anytime we would sit down for food in the house, an elder would come and talk about this this crest here, and and I'll I'll get to that in a, in a while. But that first uh, crest on top of a totem pole is the most one of the most important ones, and the next most important ones are on the bottom of the totem pole, and that is the wolf, the bear, or the killer whale, and they're not the bottom because they're the bottom, but because the people of these clans are the ones that up natural law and that's why it's like that so um, I did tell you about the uh, first teaching and the first law and that's that crest about the moon or the sun and that is about respect so elders would come and do this as once mom conceived your life and then once you were born every time you're being fed an elder would come and sit there and talk to us about the first teaching and the first law about respect, and, and they would do it in, in the sense of singing a really beautiful lullaby that they used to have. Every family had different ones, huh? and then there were really, really beautiful songs and made you really calm and respectful. And then that's how uh, it worked. I want to share a story with you, a little bit of a story. My friend Sarah, she now lives in, Sarah Campbell lives in 
in, in the United States and had not been able to return her because of immigration. She was pregnant and I would come and talk to the little one as if it were here and say, hey, little one, I can't wait to meet you. And I'll go on and on like this. It's really, really nice. And then uh, anyway, um, every time I'd see Sarah, I would talk to the little one. Didn't know it was a boy or a girl, but anyway, Sarah gave birth and I hadn't seen her. And then um, she's a musician, you see, so she was performing at the uh, Lantern Festival in Tofino and I think it was the beginning of October. And, and so I went down there and I was really excited to see Sarah and the little one. It's way we Sarah. Oh, she's up there performing. I could hear her, of course. And as yeah, as these girls are looking after the little boy, the little, little guy was crying and crying. And I had not even met him. He was crying and crying. And, and I knew his name. So I was calling him and calling him. And as I was approaching, that little baby, just like a, a week or so old, started laughing because it hurt my voice. And then, so therefore, you know, and I think that that works. You know, today uh, I feel that a lot of people are born uh, in, into uh, breath. I, I think so. Because, you know, the, the stuff we have, our media and so on, uh, the television and the kind of music people may be exposed to and so on, I think that it's really, really hard on, uh, on newborns. And it can be effective for the rest of your life. And I really do believe that. And then so back uh, in the days when only our people were here, there's none of these things that could ever make, make a noise, like these doggone things. You have these things everywhere. And that was around where the noises of nature. And right now I'm listening to crows outside of the house here. And, and they've been here all, all morning cawing and cawing. I think there's maybe probably a, a wolf or a cougar in, in the bush back here. And the crows keep us mourned about that. And, and so, you know, these are kind of uh, things also that people would uh, take notice of. They would be aware of all these things, the teachings, the songs and dances, even even that bear up there. The uh, teachings that they will come. And then some of the most important teachings that these creatures do is that uh, they only take only what they need from nature, not more. And that's how we should all live here on this world. And I believe if we did that, then we would be, uh, this world would be so much healthier and we wouldn't need this stuff happening between Russia and Ukraine. It's ridiculous. I, I feel really sad for the people in Ukraine that that is happening to them. Yeah, back to the cultural teachings here. Uh, you know, once a child was born, then uh, this teaching carried on about being respectful when, when you're little. You know, when being fed, breastfed, the elder would come and sit there, sing that beautiful lullaby to you about being respectful. And then um, you, know, you start growing, you start walking, you grow up, you're eight or nine years old now, you're running around with the other children in the village. and the people that would have been there would have been very respectful to the children. They were all of them. I remember when I was very little and how it was when I was very little. And that was a beautiful part of my life. I, I, uh, I could, I would go back to that. But of course, I'm going to be 69 this year, pushing geezerhood. <laughs> so anyways, um, <clears throat> Things like that for you, you carry on like with the boys and girls. We're getting older now. We have all our baby teeth still in our head. But after you start losing them, your adult teeth all start setting in. And what would happen um, when all your adult teeth set into your head now is that you now be initiated into the wolf clan. And that's a crest on, top, on the bottom of a totem pole. And, and this crest on the bottom of that totem pole is about the second most important teaching of life. And that is about fear. The elders would say, never have fear or show fear. So because if you're afraid, you only learn this much. But they'd always say, if you're not afraid, you can learn anything. And they'd put their arms out like that. And that's how they would do this. But of course, uh, that winter wolf ritual, it took place at December 21st, 
at the new moon, between the new moon and full moon of that time, like last year, I think it was the 20, maybe 18, or yeah, it must have been 20, no, 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 2021 or something, when the uh, new moon was December 14th. And then so all the way up until the 27th or 28th of December, it was uh, coming up and then at full moon was around there. And so at December 21st, I still have had the winter wolf ritual because there were elders who knew when a certain star appeared in the sky and they would know that the daylight is now going to start getting longer. And that is when they did the winter wolf ritual. Now, that being said, the winter wolf ritual was done then in the winter, then the spring, the summer, and the fall comes back. You go to all the seasons, and then you learn about all the other different creatures that are in this land. And that's why there are certain arrangements on a totem pole as to why it is like that. And then most of the time, you'll have to speak to the artists and the family about why those creatures are arranged in such a way. Now, Certainly, um, as you know, um, we're humans and, and we're, uh, we're animals, like a dog or a cat or a bird or a snake. They, they grow and then at a certain point they begin to reproduce. Certainly that is the same with humans and our people understood that. So right after, not too long after the initiation in the wolf clan, it was the uh, puberty ceremonies to be done for the young ladies. And that is when the bear dance was done. The bear dance was done because of the laws of nature. A bear has a boundary, right? You cannot just walk up to a bear, especially if it has cubs. Look out, she will take you out. Look out. Do not approach that female bear with cubs, no. That, that bear will take you out. So a long time ago, back in former days, it was rare when anyone molested a woman or a child. And if it happened, the person was taken immediately. And the whole village would gather and pass sentence now. Not tomorrow, not next week, now. They say it's like if you have something in your eye, do you leave that there? Oh, no, you don't. Or a sliver in your body, you pull out immediately. And that's how the laws of nature work. We, uh, we live under the laws of nature, every one of us. And then so, village to gather a past sentence now, and usually it was off with the head. They say there's no excuse because you've been taught since your mother conceived your life. And if you leave something like that in the community, it will fester. And, and it's been festering for a long time. And it's been the ugliest thing that has ever happened to our people is a sexual abuse which started in residential schools. It's horrible. And certainly, besides that, a lot of uh, missing, murdered indigenous women across the American continent, not only in my community, but all across this whole continent, the U.S. and Canada, Indigenous women get murdered and nothing happens to anybody. And yeah, it's a sad state of reality, but that's how it is. Joe, if I may just um, say something here. You spoke to so many things that are moving me profoundly. One of them is what happens when we remove, as you say, we're speaking to each other in English. It's, I wish I had my mother tongue from Sweden or Switzerland that I could speak more properly to understand it. But when our language, when our rituals, when our worlds don't have the teachings of the animals around us, our brothers and our sisters who are there to show us how to be in the world through their wisdom, and when our stories don't have us turn into a killer whale or an orca, or when we can't even embody the lives of other species, we're not fully human, whatever that even means. Um, and that's a, a massive, massive loss. And then the second part that you're pointing to is what happens when the the role of the woman in society gets so taken away and distorted that you just have human beings without mothers and without wives and without grandmothers. And in my continent, in the 12th century, that's when the crime started against the women, the peasant women. They were burned and they were accused of being witches because they practiced earth religions. And it's really 
informative to go back to that moment in time in Europe in the 11th, 12th century and realize that that was when the woman lost her place. And then that created a society that was practicing colonization on its own continent. And that was then ready in the next 100, 200, 300 years onwards to practice colonization in the world. And so when, as you say, when we don't listen to that natural order between mother and son, wife and husband, and also between bear and wolf and human, we create absolute disorder in, in the world. And that's where we find ourselves today. So I just wanted to highlight um, your words and what you've shared. When you have the presence of these totem poles in your community, it sounds like they serve as reminders and sort of visual, alive, living things that can be read about who a family is, what a place is, the law that that entire culture is grounded inside of. And I'm curious how it has been for you to carve some of those totem poles and the process of selecting the tree. I, I think I've heard you share that you've spent many weeks finding the right tree and being in conversation with the forest to choose who may represent that story. I would, I would love for you to, um, to bring us into what it's like for you as, as a carver and as an artist and as a elder of your, of your tribe and as a knowledge keeper to embody a lot of what you've just shared and bring it into the world. When I was very young, um, my father, uh, did not leave me a choice to go or not, hunting, fishing, crapping, or canoe building. To get ready, we're going. It wasn't, you want to come? It was nothing like that at all. It was, get ready, we're going. So that's I, I believe that is the way that every uh, person in our communities learned to do their things before. The boys and the girls. The girls would have to go to their moms, their grandmas, and aunts and sisters. And maybe their uncles too, off into the forest to help them get stuff. And they would get stuff and bring it back. And that's how we all learned. But uh, I did learn from my dad and my grandfather about uh, harvesting trees. And they taught that all these creatures that are on, in this world are put here by the creator for us to learn from. And that's why we're not to disturb them. Most important teachings, and that is to be respectful of all those. As they would say that respect is the uh, first teaching and the first law. So we have to respect first ourselves and then all the other creatures that are here, the plants as well, the trees. So um, I did learn from my father. He told me that trees, and, and my grandfather too, are only harvested in in the fall and the winter time. That's the only time they were cut because there may be a bird nesting up there somewhere that you cannot see. You cannot see it. It may be up there. And, and so we're not to disrupt those creatures. So the people did have a huge respect for all the creatures in this part of the world. And especially if that tree was too close to maybe a fish bearing stream or something. No, no, I'm not allowed to take it. So, you know, that was uh, one of the things. And it was uh, the laws that our people have had as well was that Mother Nature will provide our need, but not our greed. And then so, you know, we have to be very, very careful with one of the most important ingredients of all life. That is water. Every creature needs it. Every plant. You and I need it. If we did not have it, we would not be here today. Those are some of the teachings that they, they had left with us. So teachings that they, they did leave with us, uh, they're um, still here today, except that uh, what had happened with indigenous peoples or communities, the tribes, if you want to bomb that, they've uh, been forced to live under poverty for many, many years uh, as a result of the uh, the Indian Act and the church, you know, and I have to carry this, this name, Joseph. And I say Joseph was the stepfather of Jesus. So my real name is Tutah Huisnapsitlin. It comes with a role and a responsibility. 
and it is about teaching the laws of the land. Actually, my dad and my grandfather chose that name for me because they knew how I'd been raised and who I was exposed to and so on. And I think it was a really important thing. Um, and it's kind of funny in a way because, you know, when, when I was really young, my uh, my grandmother, I, I'd see her sometimes. And of course, we go through puberty, right? And then I was interested in some girls, and my grandmother didn't even have to see me. She would know she's grandson. You're a relative grandson. You can't be with that girl. <laughs> okay, grandma. <laughs> so those kind of things are things that our 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 ancestors knew. You know, even even if people were uh, maybe going to harvest things out out of season, people would know by seeing. They knew there were laws, huh? Uh, there were laws about harvesting. Uh, a lot of people figure that just because I'm an Indian person that I can go out and just take as much as I want whenever I want. Absolutely not like that. Absolutely not. We were only to take only what we need and to remember the teaching that Mother Nature will provide our needs, but not our greed. And then so, you know, that is uh, probably one of the most important teachings for all of us as communities that we can uh, begin to steward the, the lands that we live in. However, I think that one of the biggest problems that we all have to face together around this world is a global economy, you know, and it, it sucks. Our forests are now owned by foreign companies. And we don't even get a say in, in how it's managed. And it's horrible. I think it's horrible. It's, it's horrible that the people get left in uh, a state of poverty afterwards. Indigenous peoples will not move, but any other white people that come here, they can come here and buy land. And, and when they see the best opportunity, they'll sell it for double or triple the value and they'll move on somewhere else. But indigenous peoples always stay home. We're the ones left to suffer the consequences of uh, over-harvesting and, and destruction of uh, resources in, in many different ways, the waters, all the, the salmon and the fishes in the ocean, the forests are now mostly gone on Vancouver Island. It's only coming up to second growth. And we're very lucky here in Clackwood Sound. We still have uh, a bit of the old growth forest left here, a bit, I say. And then Clackwood Sound has probably the largest intact rainforest left on it on Vancouver Island. But all the rest of the island, it's sparse. How do you think about working with young people to try and remedy some of this insanity that has settled in? I hope that uh, I will be able to work with some more young people. And I'm looking forward to it. Um, however, you know, certainly with the uh, current pandemics we have all been facing, it has not been easy to work with uh, others uh, you know, in, in the last little while. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, it will be alleviated sooner that we can begin to uh, do this again. Because, you know, I, I learned a lot from uh, my father and my grandfather, but certainly it is a responsibility to pass that on. I cannot just keep it for myself. Have you ever worked with young people who have never spent time um, out in the land? Because I have met um, some people from, from my country who have only known cities. And it's incomprehensible that that's the situation, but it just is, you know. And, and people who don't have the luxury to go out into a park or a forest because they, they're, they're in an inner city um, situation. I wonder if you've ever come across people like that and how challenging it must be to even communicate the fact that we can learn from other species or that, you know, take what we need, not, not from our greed. It seems like there's like a difficult translation there um, that we must overcome if as many humans as possible can move forward together. I have worked with several different groups. Um, and at one time we were up at the Heshkut language camp, which is the way it's, um, it's isolated. And, uh, from here, from where I lived by boat, it was a one hour and 45 minute boat ride. I brought up all my tools There's this camp. There were, what were there, eight people that arrived there. And it's at the Hoxham Outdoor School, operated by Steve Charlson and his wife, Karen, and uh, the Heshkwed language program. And yeah, there were 
like I say, eight people that came. The first two days, people were uh, listening to their iPods or walking up and down the beach, sadly walking past each other, not even saying hello. And then I, I saw one of these guys, hey, and I saw him walking up. And then and he's, they came, can we charge these things? He says, no, we're very isolated and it takes a long time to get gases. We want to turn the generator on for emergencies. He says, oh, okay. And after that, people started talking. And, you know, um, we were there for a month, but that month flew by. It went by so fast that everyone just enjoyed themselves. And uh, when it was time to leave, no one wanted to leave. They really loved it. Every participant there was having tears at the end. Oh, this was so great. And I really enjoyed it, too. I, I, I really loved just working with anybody, whoever wants to work and learn about this stuff. I was very fortunate that I got to have a lot of those skills from all of the jobs that I have done. And I was taught those things. My father and my grandfather. Yeah, so anyway, that's that's how I, I see it. But certainly I think that there's got to be more of those programs for uh, younger peoples. And the forest companies have to stop taking our best wood. They are still right now targeting all of our best red cedars, all of it. They're targeting, you know, and they we say no to them, but every year they come back, so we want to revisit this thing here. Can we come back and revisit this? And they're relentless. They want it. They're after it. They're like cancer. I was reading in your in your biography, Joe, that you, for a little while in your past, also were in logging. And I'm curious, knowing a little bit from the inside, have you met loggers who you've managed to, you know, show another way or speak to them because everyone is is trying to make money for their families. And I'm not talking about the heads of the corporations who are, you know, somewhere far off in another country. And that's a whole other story. But people on the ground, I remember, was in Ferry Creek over the summer. And it's really challenging to understand how to engage with the loggers who um, maybe don't even want to be cutting the trees, but don't see an option. So I'm curious how you think about how forestry can change or evolve so that it doesn't become such a us versus them enemy kind of mentality. I, I certainly have. And, and, and some of those uh, loggers that I did work with are still angry at me about it. They're not very nice to me as well, whatever. <laughs> but uh, as indigenous peoples in this land have been made to be beggars. And then the forest companies and the goddamn fish farms that are here, they, they take advantage of us needing money. And, and so when we need money, okay, we're going to pay you this much for having our fish farm in your area. But at the same time, they've been destroying a lot. And that's something else I want to speak about, this fish farming industry. It's horrible. Ever since these fish farms have been in our waters, our wild stocks have been declining, although no one is fishing them. It's because of the sea lice and the virus spreading disease-ridden salmon farms. And they're polluting the waterways here. And then we have salmon enhancement projects whereby they catch salmon and they, they rear them. And what they do is they feed those little tiny little fish. They're about this big when they come out. They feed them the same feed as the salmon farms. When they release those things, what do they do? They smell all that, that feed coming out of that salmon farm. And they say, oh, my goodness, there's food over there. Let's go in. And they go into the fish farm. They don't make it past there. If they do, they get attacked by sea lice, which will kill them. And that's horrible. And that's why all along the entire coast of British Columbia, the uh, stocks have been declining ever since these rotten salmon farms have been in these waters. They have to get the hell out. The salmon have also been a very integral part of the forests. Wherever those salmon streams go into those forests, a bear, a wolf, an eagle, a mink, or an otter will come and take one of those fish and go out into the forest and eat it, and the bones will fall down. And that has also fed the forests for thousands of years. We have had here, close to my home here, uh, years ago, when I first began working as a logger, a tree that was laying down from the bottom to the top was 18 feet. 
in diameter. There were other ones that uh, people have told me about were 22 feet in diameter. 22 feet. Whoa, that's a huge tree. Thousands of years old. The thing that I have always found so hypnotic about the salmon is how through the salmon you can understand a whole ecosystem. I mean, they truly are a, you know, you have this term in English, like right, the keystone species or... But through the salmon, you understand the orcas, you understand the seals, you understand the deep minerals inside the forest. For people who aren't raised with an, an ecological understanding, um, I found that the salmon is the, the quickest way to explain how the deep, deep ocean feeds the inland trees and how those nutrients cycle around and, and people can start to understand and say, oh, okay, I can see how these things are connected now. And so that's why we need the the trees for the salmon and the streams. And there's such incredible teachers in that way. And, and their resilience, you know, they'll keep coming up to the dam for hundreds of years and they'll keep coming to the same stream, the same damned stream. You know, we, we were up by the Elwa River uh, three, four years ago. We did a pilgrimage there to to witness how the river had found her own way again and, and re-become her own form and her coastline. Um, and it was a very sacred pilgrimage that, that me and my partner took because we wanted to know what it was like after the dams are blown and when the fish can swim upstream again. And uh, Down by nearby Washington, right? Exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which was in at that moment in time, I think, one of the largest dam removals in history. And and as you know, we're um, in California. There's going to be a, a big one in the coming years, the Klamath Dam and a few others. But that persistence of life to keep coming back against all odds time and time and time again is something that I've, I wouldn't say learned from the salmon because I'm not as persistent as a salmon I would love to be, but that the salmon have allowed me to, to witness and to behold. Um, they are an incredible, incredible form of life. Yes, it's true. The uh, upper Kennedy River used to be a huge run of sockeye salmon in it when I was very young. Beginning of September, that river would be running red with sockeye salmon. Red, be running red. It was incredible. And now you, there might be a hundred fish that come back through. Last year, I think there was around a hundred. That's about it. And there was maybe a one Chinook salmon that was found in the river. One. So, what role do you think that your art and that your craft brings to these kinds of movements? Like, where do the worlds of of carving and continuing your cultural legacy meet the fish farms and all of the corruption in the BC government forestry policy? Like, where do those worlds come together? Well, yeah, I suppose you could phrase it in the, uh, the government, uh, the world. Because Indigenous art has always been Indigenous art, you know? and people have uh, long understood that. Indigenous peoples from wherever they are use art. And, you know, it had been one of the most important aspects of humanity the world over and still continues to be today. People still use it. Eh? The visual art and then, of course, the, the art of song and dance and stuff like that. So it's still very, very important. And the, the governments, um, I have two goddamn credit cards in my fucking wallet and the ridiculous goddamn things. Well, anyway, that's how life is. I bet you have one, too. <laughs> you mean a credit card? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like, I like how you brought this conversation to credit cards. <laughs> well, I, I, guess, I guess what I'm thinking is when you work with people in the land and when you bring them into the forest and you show them how to use their senses and you teach them how to carve, and especially with the young ones, right, what, like this bear over your shoulder and... and this is the symbolism of our people and these are the messages and the natural laws that this carries by doing that. And by bringing them into an act of creation, it seems to, to me at least that you're, you're remedying some of that alienation and that extraction and that distance that they might encounter in pretty much all other aspects of, of their life and their surroundings. Yes. Well, uh, we have um, last summer, carved a totem pole which is going to be erected at the ancient village of Hobitsa on July 1st this year. And if you can make it, I'm inviting you right now. Come on over. And um, that totem pole is depicting uh, our family's history in, in this part of the world. 
and and the teachings, some of the teachings of natural law, and what uh, our people did have was a connection to the supernatural, if you will, and that was through our our women. Our women had that stuff. And it has always been told to us that uh, every one of us gets our life from a woman, and that is why they're closer to the supernatural, if you will, than we as males. And those things can be uh, relearned. But I feel that we do have too many distractions all around us. And um, certainly it can be a real good tool as well. But uh, still, we are distracted by those things. And um, I really believe in, 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 in those things. And, and so, you know, we have... Uh, Another crest on a totem pole, which is a mythical sea serpent. And the other part that it represents is a lightning in the sky. And that is the, the name that it carries. It represents a lightning in the sky. And, and that was through uh, our connection to the supernatural by our women. And most of the songs and dances that we have are prayers, basically. And, and they're a prayer to the great spirit. And into the supernatural that uh, you evoke the power from your women onto your two leaders, male and female. Not only male, it's male and female. And, and so that power of that lightning was that uh, it teaches the men and the women to be quick, boom, like lightning. And teaching that is not very well spoken of anymore. People do the song and dance and don't really explain those things, but... I got explained those things by my father and, and uh, my grandfather, my grandmother, too. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for Well, Joe, her. actually, speaking of, of the women, you have a daughter, and I'm so curious, where does she fit into all this? Two daughters as a connection to the supernatural in a way and, and through all these tales. They're both really awesome girls, and they, they'd be right into this. They, I'm sure you would have a great podcast with them. I would love to. Gosh, yeah. What's next for you in this coming little while? Uh, the next thing for me is, uh, well, I guess I'll go to bed tonight and tomorrow I hope to wake up again. And I will do the same I thing. I hope you do too. <laughs> and, and a glass of water. And I pray that uh, the people in, in, in the Ukraine and Russia will have these things resolved sooner though, so the world can relax a bit more. You know, I think that everyone's under stress because, uh, you know, we have all these fears that we all have to face. And it, it, it's horrible that we all have to face a fear, you know, and, and there are so many uncertainties in the world in regards to the, uh, the resources in, in our lands, you know, indigenous worlds. Uh, if everyone um, would understand each other, then they could see why this land was so rich when anybody else came around here. And then if we leave it like that, it doesn't have to be sitting in a goddamn bank account. It should be sitting in uh, forests and um, all of the resources that were here that supported us all here. And, you know, it's uh, the policies of uh, the nations, you know, uh, must change to respect their peoples, all of their peoples. And I think these are really important uh, things that need addressing. No, in in the political world, but right now I know that the uh, people are in Brussels uh, addressing the current situation that is going on over over in Europe. And yeah, I know that's kind of uh, not what we're supposed to be talking about, but uh, it's part of the world we live in today. Of course. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, what's so interesting is. You can't talk about Ukraine without talking about energy, without talking about petrol, without talking about extraction, without talking about forestry, without talking about coal, without talking about wheat systems and agriculture and how we grow our food and where our dependencies lie. And so in a way, it's difficult for me to to speak with you about the indigenous rights that need to come into power in British Columbia and the forestry practices and the salmon without talking about all this other stuff, um, just because they're all so completely interrelated. And and the crux of the question is, how do we move from that culture of extraction? As you said, we live inside the global economy with our credit cards and with our little, you know, snazzy gadgets. How do we move away from that extraction? And that knowledge is held in your people, you know, how to work with the forest, how to bring more life back, how to respect the trees and all of the creatures of the land and 
create a lot more life that was there before, leave it better than you found it, right? You said in the beginning of our call. So that knowledge is is there and it's really present. I remember when I was in Tofino, I visited the botanical gardens briefly with Eli Enns and I know that they're trying to turn that into an IPCA um, create, um, what do you call it, uh, IPC development center or training center, right? That stuff for me is really exciting because it's like, okay, how do we bring the all of these knowledges together in a really practical way? Because we do need practical solutions right now. I think that we're at that point in time. Okay, that's exactly where I'm carving. I'm carving over there at the Botanical Gardens where Eli is, and it's now changed names to the Nawasim Learning Center. I believe I, I could be wrong on that because I haven't heard many times. Uh, there's actually uh, two totem poles over there and two wolf figures which are going into the uh, Pacific National Park, the bicycle trail that they're just about to open officially. And so that's when the wolves will be put in there. They're going to have wooden wolves instead of real ones to chase the people down. How are people coming into contact with those wooden wolves in the park uh, affect them? Like, well, what's your hope with that? Or is it more for the land that you're doing it to just have those poles in the land? There's going to be a um, a plaque which will be put up there to uh, and describe the important teachings of the wolf clan and what it is for us. And then, so I hope that uh, it will be um, well understood by people who will stop there and and, and learn about it. Hmm? Because, you know, I think that, um, you know, in, in regards to animals, people just think that, oh, I don't know where these Red Riding Hood stories and the stories of the wolves from the Europeans that came here. You have to shoot every wolf. Every wolf is a bad wolf and it's bloodthirsty and it's got big teeth to bite you. And then it's hungry. They're not like that. They only take only what they need, and they keep the, the deer herd strong. They keep them really strong, you know. And, and so, yeah, there's um, lots of teaching to all the different animals. You know, the wolves, the, the deer. We have a crest of a deer on this totem pole, and our family has a deer dance. And this deer dance is done because the deer has to live out there in the forest with the wolves, the bears, the cougars, and, and us when we hunt them. Those big bucks with the big horns and the big does, they didn't get to be big like that because they're lazy. Oh, no, they have good eyes, they have good ears, and good smelling. They can smell you if you're around, and and they will not let you close by. So um, my dad used to tell us, you know, the big bucks, big does, if a pack of wolves takes off for them, that, that buck or that doe has to run as fast as it can to get as far away as it can from the wolves. And when it figures it's far enough away, what it will do is run in a big circle like that, and it'll jump this way as far as possible. Then the wolves will come running around and around and around, and meanwhile, the deer is just taking off. And the wolves say, hey, where did that deer go? So my dad says it's about using your head if you get in trouble, and to be aware, and to be strong. And people had those teachings before, and I think that on the coast, many tribes had that teaching using this deer dance. And they know all the creatures that, that we can learn something from, every one of them. Before you said that the, the wolf held a teaching around fear, um, or rather, as your elders would say, you know, don't have so much fear. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Why, why the wolf and fear? Well, um, do you ever see an animal that's afraid? Like, you know, most of them are, are not. They're, uh, they're, they behave very different from humans. We have all these laws, our man-made laws. Of course, you know, uh, the teachings of the laws of nature, or uh, for example, I told you about the coming of age ceremony, and if it happened that someone molested a woman or child, the person was taken immediately, and and so you know that's uh, stuff like that. Uh, people would not be afraid of those things back in the former days because those laws were adhered to. People uh, they listened to those things, you know. They listened to those because uh, every time we'd be in a house, and an elder would come up. And sit and talk about the boundaries. This lady has a boundary. Do not cross this boundary. And then and it was explained in, in many different ways. And then so that's how those things were done. But of course, you know, with the um, the current situation with indigenous peoples all across this continent and probably many parts of the world, is that you know here at least uh, on this continent here we have been uh, forced into the residential school syndrome. And I have to speak this goddamn language to you, this English language. And it's uh, it's very different. And I hope that uh, 
you'll be able to speak with my daughters and have a discussion about more of these things with them. I, I would be so honored to speak with your daughters. Um, Joe, before we sign off, um, and I'm sorry that I'm now calling you Joe, and I, I wish I could pronounce your, your real name properly, but I would feel almost more ashamed to pronounce it wrong. So I'll just stick with Joe, and I hope you'll forgive me. <laughs> Try it. Two. Two. Ta. Snap. Sheets. Yes. That wasn't so hard. No, it wasn't. Thank you. Walked me through it very patiently. How could anyone who's listening connect with your work or something that matters to you? You know, they're listening to this, and how can they engage with the multitude of things that are in your in your life and in that of your community? Mm, that's a good question. Oh, I don't know. There's you know all these other uh, places that need help as well, like the uh, Fort Renfrew and the uh, cutting up the last ancient forest down there by Victoria, which is really sad. God, it's its last forest they have. And then on Nootka Island with the New Catholic people, they just started court case on Monday. And, and, uh, yeah, there's so many things that, you know, and, uh, across this place, and, and, and including all these rotten fish farms that need to be the hell out of our waters to save any of our wild fishes that are here. Because it does not only affect salmon, it, fe- it affects all the other fishes as well that swim those waters. And these diseases were not here before. They were perfectly healthy. I know that also uh, I have you on Facebook and you're often posting incredible news and articles um, and you're, you're, you keep me informed about what's happening in BC. So thank you for that. But I'll, um, I'll sync up with you after and we can find a way to have some links to some things that people can engage with. Uh, maybe it's initiatives or petitions they can sign or something like that. Because I like for these conversations to be reciprocal. Joe. Blessings to you. Thank you so much for your time. It's so nourishing to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Stay tuned in two weeks' time where we will have a fresh episode going into nature-based planning and maps for large landscape conservation. As always, I'd love to hear from you. So please reach out to me on liferoll.earth where you can also find all of the show notes and an open source library ranging on everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to the email list and I'll see you back here soon.